Prayer is a central aspect of Jewish life. In the second Mishnah of Pirkei Avos, it lists the three pillars of Jewish life and Torah practice, and it tells us pillar one is Torah, pillar number two is Avodah, which means worship of God, which means prayer, and the third pillar is loving kindness. And indeed, much of Jewish observance is prayer. You know, there's three daily prayers on Shabbos and holiday, there's four prayers. On Yom Kippur, there's five prayers. If you do the math, there's much more than a thousand annual prayers. And even if you read through the Torah and the Tanakh, we see prayer is invoked again and again as a lever of influence that we can have to entreat God to get God to do what, what we want. But I also think that despite prayer being such a significant part of Jewish life, I think it's a little bit under-discussed. So what I want to do tonight is to learn the history of Jewish prayer, where did it come from, go through some of the instances in the Torah and the Bible where there's episodes of people praying, and hopefully see some of the various dimensions and themes of prayer, and then go through history, how did prayer change, how did it evolve, how did it reach the current form, and also a few stories along the way about prayer as well. So the very first reference of prayer in the Torah is in the second chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 talks about creation, and chapter 2 is where we meet Adam. But before Adam arrives, in chapter 2, verse 5, we read that there was something missing. Now all the trees of the field were not yet on the earth, and all the herb of the field had not yet sprouted. For Hashem God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the soil. So at the beginning of chapter 2 of, of Genesis, we're told there's no man, and therefore there's no rain, and therefore the trees and the foliage are not sprouting because there's no man and there's no rain. So Rashi tells us over there in his, in his commentary that until man showed up and appreciated the rain, there was no rain. And when Adam showed up, he prayed, and it started raining, and all those saplings that were ready to go to burst forth from the earth, they came forward because of the rain that resulted from Adam's prayer. So this is the first prayer that we see in all of Jewish literature. And what this, I think, establishes is that God wants to do good for us. God gives us trees, and he gives us rain, but all that hinges on man appreciating it, and man praying for it. Now, in chapter 3, we also see another reference to prayer as well. As we know, the story of the Garden of Eden at the beginning of Genesis, God tells Adam, don't eat from this fruit. If you do, bad things are going to happen to you. Adam, together with his wife, are seduced by the serpent and they consume from the fruit, and everything changes. They recognize they're naked in the whole story as we read it in Genesis. Afterwards, God confronts Adam. Why did you eat from the tree? Well, my wife gave it to me. Well, why did you eat from the tree? The serpent. And in the aftermath of that story, God punishes all three perpetrators, Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And it's interesting that the punishment of the serpent is somewhat bizarre. This is chapter 3, verse 14. And Hashem God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, accursed are you beyond all the cattle 
and beyond all the beasts of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. The punishment of the serpent for his participation in the sin, the original sin of the Garden of Eden, was that he's going to be in his belly. We're told in the, in the sources that he used to have legs, lost the legs, and, and he's going to eat dust. Now, the question is, how is this punishment? After all, all of us, we need to struggle to find food. But dust, well, that's very plentiful. So it's, it's a blessing for the serpent to be told, you're going to be eating dust. He'll never go hungry. So the sages, in their analysis of this curse, they invoke the idea of prayer. And they use a Talmud in the book of Yoma to explain it. The Talmud asks, we know in the book of Exodus and beyond, the Jewish people in the desert, in the wilderness, they're consuming manna from heaven. And the manna, the Jews ate it for 40 years in the wilderness until they came into the land of Israel. And it arrived every morning, with the exception of, of Shabbos, twice on Friday. So the question the Talmud asks, it could have been so much more efficient. Why does it have to come once a day, let it come once a year? You get a stockpile of manna, you keep it in the back of your tent, and you're good to go. Why does it have to be there every day? This is from the book of Yoma on page 76a. The students asked Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, why did God not bring manna once a year? So he gives them a parable, an analogy. Suppose you have a king, a human king, who has one son. And he, of course, wants to pay for the son's needs. So every year, the child comes and he gives them enough money for the whole year. And then the king is a little bit disappointed because he gets to see his son only once a year. Every year he shows up, gets a stipend, gets his allowance, and leaves. The king wants a relationship. And therefore he says, oh, I'm going to change the rules. From now on, every day, I'll give you enough food for one day. I'll give you enough sustenance, money for one day. And now every single day, the king has a relationship with his son because every day the son comes and asks for money. Similarly, with the manna, God wants to have a relationship with the Jewish people. And therefore every day, they're uncertain. They have to kind of, they're a little bit uneasy. Will we have food? Will we not have food? Let's pray to God and we'll get the food. And similarly, with regards to prayer, prayer is man asking God for what we need. And therefore, the serpent, he never needs to pray food. And when God is telling him, God's punishing him by telling him, you're going to have enough food to eat. There'll never be a time you'll be hungry. There's always going to be more dust for you to consume. However, that in itself is a tremendous curse because it means that I'm going to divorce myself from you. I'm not interested in dealing with you. And therefore, we're not going to have this ongoing relationship. Whereas everyone else, we're a little bit uneasy. Will we have food? Will we not have food? We pray to God, and thus we actually develop a relationship with him through our prayers. Now, throughout the book of Genesis, there are many, many instances of people praying, and specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham, the first time he prays in the text is in chapter 18. God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because they're all sinners. And Abraham, maybe if we were in his shoes, we would have said, okay, great. I'm trying to get rid of sinners. These people stand for everything I'm trying to oppose. 
But instead, Abraham begins a, an intensive effort to intercede upon the behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells God, well, you're going to kill also the righteous? Maybe there's 50 righteous people in the city and they're going to save the whole city. Maybe there's 45, maybe there's 40, maybe there's 30, maybe there's 20, maybe there's 10. Once it becomes clear that there aren't sufficient righteous people in the city, Abraham goes back to his place, he relents, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. So this shows us, I think, another angle of, of prayer, that prayer, we can pray for other people as well. And maybe the righteous, they pray for even people who are wicked. Abraham was someone who felt a kinship with all of humanity and a love for all of humanity. And even when the most wicked people were being destroyed, it bothered him to the degree that he wanted to pray on their behalf. There's another interesting episode of Abraham's prayer with respect to the abduction of Sarah. Sarah was abducted twice, once by Pharaoh and once by Avimelech. In chapter 20, Abraham travels to Gerar, and Sarah is taken by the king Avimelech. And the king is not able to pursue his relationship with Sarah, and he has a terrifying dream where God tells him, you're going to die because you took a married woman. But God tells him, you know what? I, I, we could stop this if you get Abraham to pray for you. This is chapter 20, verse 7. But now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live but if you do not return her, be aware that you shall surely die, you and all that is yours. Of course, Avimelech hearkens. He takes Sarah, gives her back to Abraham. And in verse 17, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Avimelech, his wife and his maids. They were all relieved for Hashem had completely restrained every orifice of the household of Avimelech because of Sarah, the wife of of Abraham. The punishment that Avimelech was given as a result of his abduction of Sarah was that all the people of his household, all their orifices were sealed. And of course, that's painful and dangerous, and that's a horrible way to die. As a result of Abraham's prayer, all the orifices were opened. Now, it's interesting. The Talmud gives us another backstory to this. We know that at this time, Sarah is already an elderly woman, and Abraham is very old himself. And Sarah has been barren. She doesn't have any children. And immediately after this episode, the very next verse, chapter 21, verse 1, Hashem had remembered Sarah, as he said, and she conceived and bore a son. So it's interesting. The previous verse all the people of Avimelech's household and camp, all their orifices were closed, were sealed. Sarah, initially, well, her orifices were also, she wasn't able to bear children, was sealed. What happens? Abraham prays for Avimelech that they should open, be able to bear children. And immediately afterwards, the same thing happens for Abraham's own family, and Sarah is able to bear children. Says the Talmud, if you need something and someone else needs the same thing and you pray not only for yourself but also 
for someone else, then you will be answered before they will be. This is a way to accelerate your prayer. Normally, if you're just praying for yourself, your prayer doesn't have as much potency. But Abraham is praying that the people of Avimelech's camp should have children. Therefore, his prayer for Sarah, that they too should have children, was also answered immediately in the next verse. Sarah begot a child, and that, of course, is Isaac. Now, Isaac as well, he too prays several times in Genesis. In addition, there is another prayer done by Eliezer, Abraham's right-hand man. In chapter 24, it's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It tells a very interesting story about Abraham appointing his right-hand man to go secure a wife for Isaac. But don't take from the Canaanites, go to my household, to my land, to my family, and go find a wife for Isaac over there. And Eliezer travels with a bunch of camels, and he stops at the well, and he starts praying. This is chapter 24, verse 12. And he said, Hashem, God of my master Abraham, may you so arrange it for me this day that you do kindness with my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the town come to draw water. Let it be that the maiden to whom I shall say, please tip over your judge so I may drink, and who replies, drink, and I will even water your camels, her will you have designated for your servant for Isaac, and may I know through, uh, through her that you have done kindness with my master. He's making a deal with God. I have a plan. I'm going to do a test. I'm going to ask the girl for water. She's going to say, oh, I'm not only giving you water, I'm giving you your camel's water as well. And please, God, let that girl be the right one. And indeed, the next verse, and it was when he had not yet finished speaking that suddenly Rebecca walks out. She marches out and the rest of his history. Rebecca marries Isaac. So this is another interesting angle, I think, on prayer that we're told in Scripture. And that is that you could kind of make deals with God. You're telling God, okay, I have this plan and help my plan be implemented. I'm looking for a specific kind of girl, a girl that has innate kindness to fit into Abraham's family. Let her be the one who's designated for Isaac. And indeed, God capitulated and Rebecca was sent to him. At the end of that same chapter, when Rebecca is being brought back to Israel to meet Isaac, Isaac goes out to pray in the field and we're told as well that, that this is an example of Isaac praying in the afternoon. So if Abraham prayed in the morning, Isaac prayed in the afternoon, and Jacob is going to pray in the evening. And thus the three daily prayers are modeled after that. Now it's interesting. Sarah, she was barren. And thanks to Abraham's prayer and Sarah's prayer, she had a child. Isaac and Rebecca are married for 20 years. And she too is barren. And the verse tells us, that they prayed opposite each other. Isaac entreated Hashem opposite his wife because she was barren. Hashem allowed himself to be entreated by him and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. So there's an interesting subtlety that the commentaries point out. So they're praying. Isaac is praying to have a child. Rebekah is praying to have a child. And God listens. But if you read the verses critically, you'll notice that God listens to Isaac 
but not necessarily to Rebecca. So why is Isaac's prayer more potent than Rebecca's prayer? Says Rashi, Eino domet tfilas tzadik ben tzadik, the tfilas tzadik ben Rashi. It's incomparable, the prayer of a tzadik, of a righteous person, who is also the son of a righteous person, to the prayer of a tzadik, of a righteous person, whose parents are wicked. Isaac and Rebekah were both righteous. But there's a difference in the pedigree. Isaac had righteous pedigree. His father, Abraham and Sarah, they were very righteous. Whereas Rebekah, she came from more suspect a background. Her father's and family were idolaters, and she was an outlier. And therefore, Isaac's prayer is more potent than Rebekah's prayer. And the question is, of course, obvious. Isn't it more impressive for someone who comes from a very bad background, whose parents are idolaters, for them to pray? Isn't that more, isn't that more noteworthy? Why is Isaac's prayer more valued than Rebekah's prayer? So, my grandfather gave an answer to this question, which I, I think, again, sheds light on the essence of prayer. He said that prayer, at its core, is about humility. It's about man humbling him or herself before God, subjecting and submitting himself, him or herself, to God's dominion. It's saying, I don't have control, you have control. Humility is difficult because we have a certain stature that we attribute to ourselves, and to be humble means to lower that stature. And therefore, if someone's parents are righteous, and they're righteous, they come from good stock, to them, they have a lot to be proud of. You know who my father is? My father's Abraham. You know who my mother is? My mother is Sarah. You know who I am? I'm Isaac. For someone like that, humility is much more difficult to achieve. Rebecca, after all, her, her family is a little bit suspect. I don't want to talk about it. I don't know. Let's change the subject. Therefore, humility is easier for Rebecca to achieve and more difficult for Isaac to achieve. And therefore, their prayers are measured by how much effort was invested in it. For Isaac to pray, it was more difficult. It was much more difficult for him to reach the pedestal of humility, and therefore his prayer has more potency. And thus, another dimension that we're told, A, that prayer is about humility, and also what you invest in the prayer is directly commensurate to how powerful the prayer is. Of course, after the prayer, she becomes pregnant, she has twins, Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau, they are opposites, they go their separate ways, and eventually Esau wants to kill Jacob, and Jacob flees. On his way out, he stops off on Temple Mount, and he starts praying. And that happens at night, because he goes to sleep, and he has a dream with the ladder that is going all the way to heaven, and thus completing the trifecta of morning, afternoon, and evening prayers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob spends a long time with Lavan. He comes back, and he is again worried about Esau, who wanted to kill him uh, 20 or so years prior. So what does he do? Chapter 32, verse 8, Jacob finds out that Esau is marching towards him with 400 warriors. Jacob became very frightened, And it distressed him, so he divided the people within him and the flock and the cattle and the camels into two camps. And he said, if 
Esau comes to one camp and strikes it. The other one will survive. The first thing that Jacob did was cut your losses. What's the next thing he did? Then Jacob said, started praying, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Hashem, who said to me, return to your land and to your relatives and I will do good with you. I have been diminished by all the kindness and by all the truth that you've done to your servant. Eventually he says, rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I'm worried he's going to come and slaughter me. And says the Talmud, we have three daily prayers after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have the morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. In the book of Exodus, Jewish people are enslaved. And they're enslaved, and they're being punished, and they're being tormented, and they're being horrifically persecuted. And what do the Jewish people do? What do Jews do in times of great stress and pain? Chapter 2 Verse 23, during those many days, it happened that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned because of the work and they cried out. Their outcry was heard by God and God decided to go save them. Comes along Moses, 10 plagues, the Jewish people leave and they leave and they escape and they're free to go. Seven days later, they're boxed into a corner. The Egyptians are surrounding them. Their backs are up against the sea. What's going to be? So again, this is chapter 14, verse 10. The children of Israel raised their eyes, and behold, Egypt was journeying after them, and they were frightened. The children of Israel cried out to Hashem. Again, when things were really bad to the Egyptians, they cried out, and when things were again bad, they cried out a second time. Says the Midrash. What is the meaning behind all these times the Jewish people are crying out? It gives an example. It gives a mushal, a parable, to a king was traveling along the way. And he hears a terrifying cry. Someone's crying. Someone's being assaulted. Someone's being tormented. And he goes there and he finds that there is a woman there. And she's being harassed. And she's screaming out, save me, save me. So what does the king do? He runs over and he saves her. So after some time, he really likes this girl and decides to marry her. And they get married, and things are great, until she stops talking to him. And he's disturbed. He wants to have a relationship with his wife. What's going to be? How do I get her to talk to me? And he remembers the first time he got her to talk to him when she was in danger. So he stages another robbery. And the thieves come in, and they... Begin to assault her. And she again, she calls out, save me, king, save me, save me. And he runs and he saves her. Similarly, says the Midrash, God wanted to be close to the Jewish people. And therefore, he made their life difficult with the Egyptians. And they call out to God. And these are great. They now have a relationship. They go out of Egypt and they begin to forget about God. They worry about other stuff. So what does God do? God again surrounds them with danger. And again, they call out to God to save them. I think this, again, adds another few wrinkles to our understanding of prayer. Prayer is about us developing a relationship with God, but also God is desirous of that relationship. And God is going to manipulate circumstances in a way that's going to evoke us to cry out to God. And if we want to avoid situations where our back are up against the wall, we make sure that we deepen our prayer with God ahead of time. Let's not wait until things are so bad 
and God forces us to pray, we could prevent those situations from arising if only we are to pray ahead of time. Now, throughout the duration of a Jewish people's sojourn in the wilderness, there are many instances when the Jews pray. The two most significant episodes are times where God threatens to destroy the Jewish people wholesale. Number one, in the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. Number two, in the aftermath of the sin of the spies, where Moshe sends in 12 spies. They give a bad report. The people say, let's go back to Egypt. God says, okay, I'm fed up with these people. I'm going to destroy them. In both instances, Moshe intercedes on behalf of the Jewish people. In both instances, this first one is in chapter 32 of Exodus. The second one is in chapter 14 of Numbers. Both times he references what's Egypt going to say. They're going to say you can't. You took them out of the land of Egypt to, to just destroy them. And in both instances, there is a mention of the 13 attributes of mercy. These are the 13 attributes that God has of mercy towards us. Now, it's interesting. If you read the run-up to the first episode of the Golden Calf, where Moshe had to save the Jewish people, God tells him in chapter 32, verse 10, after God enumerates the sins of the Jewish people, he tells Moshe, and now leave me and let my anger flare up against them and let me destroy them and we'll start from scratch. You will be the father of the new nation. And Rashidar points out that there's a little bit of a theological problem in this verse. What does God tell Moshe? God tells Moshe, leave me, allow me, yield to me and let me destroy them. God is, so to speak, asking permission from Moshe. God doesn't need Moshe's permission to do anything. Why is God telling Moshe, and now let me do this? Says Rashi, that God is hinting a message to Moshe. He's telling him that I need your permission because if you pray, I'm not going to do it. Thus, I need you to allow me to do it because if you pray, you could stop it. And I think this is another interesting point. What would have happened had Moshe not prayed? It's clear from the verses and from this Rashi that the Jewish people would have been destroyed and a new nation would have been formed with one forefather, only Moshe. Thus, what do we see? Prayer can be presented as man's seat at the table in determining the fate of their own life, the life of their family, the life of the Jewish nation, and the life of the world. We believe that God is, of course, in control, but God wants a partner in us. God decides, I want to destroy the Jewish people. But there's a partner who also has to make a call, and that is Moshe. And God tells Moshe, okay, if you pray, then you're opting to save the Jewish people. If you don't pray, then you're yielding to me, and I'm going to destroy them. And that, again, highlights the power of prayer because We believe, of course, God is in control, but there's a balance. We too have a say, and we invoke our say. We take our seat at the table in determining what happens in the world when we pray. And it's also interesting that both times where God threatens to destroy the Jewish people, Moshe invokes the 13 attributes of mercy. Now, what this means is, is that 
God has a fixed way that he treats us. God himself, according to Jewish theology, does not have limitations. However, the way he treats us does have limitations. This world is finite, even though God is infinite. And therefore, God can decide what degree of influence he's allowing the world to operate on. So what happens? God tells Moshe, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. Moshe says, okay, let me pray. Let's change that. Wait, wait, if God wants to destroy the Jewish people, that means that their sin is worthy of them being destroyed. How does Moshe, through his prayer, change that? And the answer is, is that what Moshe is actually telling God in his prayer is that, yes, the Jewish people did commit a grievous sin that should warrant that they be destroyed. But that's only in the existing framework of how you treat the world. However, the 13 attributes of mercy, they're a request to God to change the way he treats the world and to expand the realm of mercy that he affords the world. And thus, by the new rules, by the expanded rules of mercy, the Jewish people, they fall within the realm of allowable activity that won't destroy them. So Moshe is not saying, forgive the sin. He is saying that, of course. But he's saying, even if you don't forgive the sin, let the sin be within the realm of acceptable behavior or behavior that does not warrant the entire nation to be destroyed because now I want you to change the degree of mercy that you allocate to the world. A very powerful idea. Now, Until now, we've spoken about a lot of inspirational ideas. There's so much inspirational ideas and different elements and realms of prayer that we find throughout the Torah. But it's also important to stress that there's actually a commandment, a mitzvah in the Torah, that we must pray. And according to the Rambam, Maimonides, it's a mitzvah to pray every single day. Others, they dispute that. They say you only need to pray. You only, from a Torah perspective, must pray during times of distress and and pain and challenge. But the Rambam, quoting a verse in Exodus, he says that it's a mitzvah to pray every single day. However, the Torah doesn't give us very clear rules of how to pray, what to say, when to pray, what time of the day, how long should you pray. None of that is included in the Torah mitzvah. And it's interesting how that's going to change throughout history. Because... You know, from Sinai, the Jewish people were commanded to pray every day. But nowhere is there a liturgy. There's no fixed text or canonized version of what you should say and what you shouldn't say or when you should say it. it. just says a prayer every day. How do people pray? Well, that's up to them to decide. And throughout history, that's going to change very dramatically. As we know today, in every shul, there's tons of sidurim and everyone says the same text. And where do those come from and how do they develop and what's the evolution of fixed prayer? That's all going to change after Sinai, after the Torah and in the ensuing millennia since Sinai. Now, if we went through every example of prayer in Jewish literature, we'd be here for many, many, many hours. But I think it's important for us to stress that there are some iconic prayers that we cannot skip over in any discussion about prayer. So, for example, I want to read to you 
in chapter 1 of the book of Samuel, we read a very famous prayer called the prayer of Chana. Samuel is the child of Chana, and his father's name is Elkanah, but Chana is barren. And her stepwife or co-wife, Penina, she has loads and loads of kids. And Chana is distressed and sad, and she decides to go to the temple. Now, it's important. It's not, the, it's not the temple in Jerusalem. It's the temple in Shiloh. And she decides to pray. She tells God, this is chapter 1, verse 11. She made a vow and said, Hashem, master of legions, if you take note to the suffering of your maidservant, and you remember me, and you do not forget your maidservant, and you give your maidservant male offspring, give me a son, then I shall give him to Hashem all the days of his life, and a razor shall not come upon his head. This is the famous prayer called Hannah's Prayer, where she commits, if she has a child, if she merits to have a son, she's going to dedicate his life to God, and he's going to be a nazir. He's not going to have, he's not going to have a, a haircut. Now, it's interesting. So she's praying in the temple, and the high priest, he's Ailey, and he sees this woman praying, and she's praying silently, and he finds it very strange. And verse 12 continues, It happened, as she continued to pray before Hashem, that Ailey observed her mouth. He started looking at what she was doing. And Hannah was speaking to her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. So Ailey thought she was a drunk. And Ailey said to her, How long will you be drunk? Remove your wine from yourself. Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of a grieved spirit. I have not drunk no wine, nor, nor strong drink. I have poured out my soul before Hashem. So the commentaries in the Midrash and the Talmud, they explain what, what happened over here. The high priest had a magical prophetic implement called the Urim Vatumim, which was inside the flap of the breastplate. And it would be like a conduit to God. So Ailey sees this strange woman and she's praying silently. What's the deal? So he consults his magical prophetic and what that does, it lights up letters in the breastplate. So it lit up the letters that read Kisara, like Sarah. Because this woman's like, she's a righteous woman, but she's barren. She's like Sarah. But he read it, Shikora. He just, he misscrambled the letters and he thought she was a drunkard. So he's like, well, why are you drinking wine? You can't come to the temple. You can't pray while drunk. Now, it's interesting. The Talmud deduces many laws about the uh, laws of prayer from this particular episode. The book of Talmud, um, Brachos, on page 31a, it tells us, number one, we see Hannah, she's praying to her heart. She's concentrating. She's invested. She, she's, her heart is part of the prayer. It's not just lip service. She's emotionally engaged in the words. Similarly, when we pray, we have to concentrate as well. Number one. Number two, she's enunciating. Her lips are moving, but there's no sound. So here we're told is that the Amidah prayer, it's all done silently. However, even though it's not audible, it has to be enunciated. And finally, we also learn from this episode, a fourth law that you cannot pray if you are drunk. That's it. So this is an important episode about prayer throughout 
uh, Tanakh. There are other examples, but we will continue here. So we have a mitzvah in the Torah to pray, but it's not fixed. It's not rigid. There's no time when you're supposed to pray. There's no formalized, canonized text. Uh, the Talmud does point out that King David, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 55, in verse uh, 17, As for me, I shall call unto God, and Hashem will save me. Evening, morning, and noon, I supplicate and moan. The Talmud does bring the story to say that King David, he did pray three times a day, morning, afternoon, and night. But that was an anomaly. That was unusual. That wasn't something that was ubiquitous throughout the nation. So we have a mitzvah and a a, a core element of Jewish life, but it's not yet uh, canonized. All that is going to change when the first temple is destroyed. The Jewish people, they were in Israel for 850 some odd years. The last 400 and change, they had a temple in Jerusalem built by King Solomon. And the Jewish people were united. They were united, even though there were some schisms, but they were united because they had a temple. There was a rallying point where all the Jewish people coalesced. The Babylonians come, Nebuchadnezzar, and he destroys the temple. He sends the Jews into exile into Babylon, and it's a different nation. The nation is scattered, the temple is destroyed, and there is a major disruption of normative Jewish life, and there's going to be also a fracturing of Jewish communities. From that point forward until today, there has never been a time where all the Jews were living in the same country. And that was the norm until then. And of course, there's also general upheaval, insecurity, instability in the nation. Now, 70 years later, a small contingency of Jews travel back to Israel and they begin the process of rebuilding the temple. That's going to be the second temple. That said, the majority of Jews opt to remain in Babylon. Moreover, there's blocks of the nation that are struggling with observance. We're told in scripture that there's intermarriage, there's Shabbos desecration. The Jewish nation is not on firm ground. And the biggest danger to them all is the fact that this is going to coincide with the decline and the end of prophecy. Until that point, at every juncture of Jewish life, there's always been a prophet who had a direct connection to God, beginning, of course, with Moshe, all the way to the 4th century before the Common Era. That, of course, is reaching its tail end. And as a result, the Jewish people are somewhat in a crisis mode. What is going to establish the next phase of Jewish life? So the leader of the Jews at the time is Ezra. He comes back from Babylon to Israel, and he sets up shop in Jerusalem to oversee the next developments of what's going to be with our nation. And he's trying to grapple with a world where the Jews are not living in the same place, the temple does not have the same glory, and the general situation of the Jewish nation is much more volatile. And he convenes the Knesses Hagadola, the Great Assembly. It's going to be an assembly of 120 sages. Some of them are going to be the last prophets, and they are going to take many steps to bring the Jewish nation or to secure the position, to buttress the position of the Jewish nation going forward in this new reality that the Jewish people are going to be living in 
thenceforth. One of the things that they did was they began the process to standardize the prayer, to give it structure, and to give it a formula. We're told in the Talmud in the Book of Megillah, Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan said, Meya ve'esrim zekenim, 120 elders, ubahem kamanavim, and amongst them several prophets, kitnu shmona esrei brachos, they enacted, they established the 18 brachos, the shmona esrei, al haseder, on the order. So this is the beginning of the codification of what we have today in the Siddur. Now it's interesting, those that particular statement, it does highlight the fact that some of these authors of the Shemona Esrei are prophets. Why is that significant? I think it's significant on two fronts. Number one, these are still prophets. Yes, they're the weakest of the prophets, they're the tail end of the prophets, but they still have a direct connection to God. And therefore, that influenced the words that they chose to put in the finalized text of the Shemona Esrei. And they chose them because they got communication from God that these are the most effective and potent words to achieve the goals of prayer. Moreover, we're told in the sources that they managed to insert every conceivable prayer thought into those words that they fixed. Today, it's not just today, it's happened over the last several centuries, there have been efforts to try to tamper with, tinker with, improve, if you will, the text of the Shemona Esrei. I think when the Talmud tells us that these were prophets, and the prophets, they were the ones who decided what words are included, if someone says, you know what, I have a better idea, they may have a very logical reason why they want to change the text of the Shemona Esrei, but they're not prophets. The Jewish people have been a non-profit organization for a long time. And therefore, when you have a choice, you could choose the words of the prophet or the words of someone who made it up, of course, the logical choice would be to opt for the words that have prophetic backing. Now, what is this structure of this prayer? So it's important to note, we have a sitter, the sitter today that you get from Artstroll, it's like a thousand pages. It's got English and all these other kinds of prayers. The Men of the Great Assembly, all they did was the 18 benedictions, the 18 prayers called the Shemona Esrei. There's a, a fixed structure to it. It's broken down into three elements. The first three blessings, that's praise. The middle 12, those are requests. The final three are thanks. They also instituted that this should be said three times a day, either corresponding to the three forefathers or corresponding to the three daily sacrifices in the temple. And this same basic structure remains until today uh, with minor changes as, as we'll see. Now it's important, even though they finalized the prayer, it's still very fluid. As we see, they, they didn't write it down. It was transmitted orally and as a result, there were some slight variations that arose in custom. Moreover, this is only a small part of the prayer. Today, the morning prayer, the shacharis, maybe takes, depends where you pray. Uh, in, in the yeshiva that I went to in Israel, 
the shachwas would take like an hour and 15 minutes. So it would be interminable. But you go to some places where it's a much more expedited version. They have it like on an 18 minutes or 20 minutes. Average maybe is 40 minutes. But how long of that is the Shemona Esrei? It's a small part. Maybe 5 to 10 minutes of the entire thing is the Shemona Esrei. There's a lot more and all that really develops later. But it's interesting. There's a change now. Previously, we had a temple. Previously, we had sacrifices. And the prayer, while obligatory every day, that was in the hands of the prayer-er to determine. Now, there is a little bit of a replacement. The temple, yes, it exists in Israel, but that's not quite the same temple as the first temple. And the majority of Jews are in Babylon. And thus, a new terminology gets introduced based upon a verse in Ezekiel, and that's called the Mikdash Me'at, the mini-temple. And that name is assigned to synagogues. A synagogue is supposed to be representative of a temple. It's not quite the temple, but it's a mini-temple. Because it's just like when people went to the temple Jerusalem, it was done to get close to God, and to pray, and to repent, and to bring sacrifices. When you go to pray in a synagogue, it's a mini-experience. You're supposed to pray and repent and sacrifice your soul for God. We're told in the Talmud there were hundreds of synagogues enacted in the Second Temple era. Uh, We're also told by our discoveries in history and archaeology that there were synagogues right next to the Temple, the Temple, the Second Temple. So right next to the Beis Hamidrash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, there was actually a synagogue right next to it. And there are stories in the Talmud where people would go and they go to the temple and watch sacrifices and then they would pivot over next door to the shul, to the synagogue and say the prayers that corresponded to those sacrifices. In fact, there's still a extant synagogue today in Masada from that time period. The next major stage of codification of the prayer arrived in Yavne. Yavne is the name of the Masifta, of the institution in central Israel. After Jerusalem was destroyed a second time by the Romans, the rabbis coalesced in this city, and there the Sanhedrin continued its operations. There, they further standardized the prayers and the final order of the prayer, and they also added a 19th blessing. Today, the Shemona Esrei is called, still called the Shemona Esrei. The word Shemona Esrei means 18. If you count the prayers, you'll end up with 19. And that's because roughly 10 or 15 years after the Second Temple is destroyed, in the 70s or 80s, there was an effort by the rabbis to ferret out closet Judeo-Christians. As we know, Christianity started as an offshoot of Judaism. And the people were externally Jewish, But in their heart, they still harbored some belief in their uh, deceased savior. And these people were indistinguishable from their neighbors, and that caused a lot of problems. So in Yavne, they instituted this 19th prayer, the prayer against the heretics, and anyone who was suspected of perhaps being a closet Judeo-Christian, they would say, okay, why don't you leave the services? And that person may be hesitant to leave the services because part of that prayer is cursing the Judeo-Christians, and therefore that was a way to help bifurcate the Judaism and Christianity. You had to choose. You couldn't be both of them. In addition, uh, they incorporated the destruction of the temple into the prayer as well, 
and they developed abridged versions of prayers for extenuating needs. That again is indicative of the times because there is a rise, there's an uptick of all kinds of extenuating needs. Maybe someone is dodging Romans. How could you have a full service prayer? They developed more shortened, shortened abridged versions for such times. The Talmud tells us that the sages of the Mishnahic and Talmudic era during this time, they also invented their own prayers. And there's a whole list in the Talmud in the Book of Brachos on page 16b and 17a of all prayers that were individual statements of great rabbis. And some of these were subsequently added into our prayer book. So much of a, a lot of snippets from our prayer book actually originate from the great sages of the Talmud and the Mishnahic eras the personal prayers of the great rabbis that were codified in the Talmud were later added into the Siddur. So, for example, in the morning, we say this blessing, Save us from being brazen and from bad people and from the Sahara and from bad neighbors and from the Satan. That was a prayer that was originated by Rabbi Judah the Prince. There's another prayer that we say on Shabbos Mevarchem, the Shabbos before a Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the month, like this past Shabbos was, we say the prayer of the new month, and that originates with the prayer of Rav. Rav was the great sage of Babylon of the 3rd century, and he had this prayer that he would say every day, give us a long life, a life of peace, a life of goodness, a life of blessing, a life of uh, prosperity, a life of, of strength, a life of fear of sin, a fear of heaven, a life that is free of shame, etc., etc., that's a prayer that he was every day, and that's a prayer that we say the Shabbos before the new month. In fact, if you look at some editions of the Siddur, it actually adds at the end of the prayer, Bischus Tfilas Rav, in the merit of the prayer of Rav. That doesn't mean of the rabbi, it means of Rav, the original Rav of the third century. Uh, there's many more examples, but those are two of them that were included in the Siddur that we have today. Now, these people of the Talmudic and Mishnahic eras, they took prayer very seriously. Uh, in fact, the Talmud tells us that the pious people would spend an hour before every prayer getting ready, clearing their minds. So if you multiply that times three, it's three hours a day, not to pray, just to prepare for praying. And they would have such concentration that that developed a certain standard. And the Talmud says, it's better not to pray if you don't have concentration. And the, the Talmud also says that if they, people would take a journey, you know, when you take a journey, you're a little bit kind of frazzled, you're a little jet lagged, you're a little bit, you're, your head's not fully there with you. In the sages of the Talmud, when they would take a journey, they wouldn't pray for three days because they had a certain standard of concentration that they did not, not want to compromise upon. For us, we don't have concentration anyhow. Therefore, we pray regardless. Now, it's also important to note that Talmud brings many stories of great rabbis and great sages and how their prayer was actually responded to by God in miraculous ways. And there's many such stories. I'll bring you a few of them. Uh, the famous story of Choni Hamagel. Choni Hamagel, he lived in the uh, first century before the Common Era. And whenever there was no rain in Israel, you need to have the rain. If there's no rain, there's the risk of a drought. 
And that still applies today, which is why a lot of Israeli technology deals with uh, desalination and conservation of, of rain. But that existed, that problem existed then. So they went to this, uh, he was the righteous sage, and his name was Choni Hamadol. And they went to him and said, okay, we don't have rain. And what's going to be? We need you to pray. So he says, okay, I want everyone to take in all your stuff from outside. It's going to start raining. You know, don't leave your bike outside because it'll get all rusty. So everyone brings in all their stuff. He starts praying. Everyone's waiting. Nothing. No rain. So what does he do? He takes a stick and he makes a circle around himself in the sand. And he says to God, master of the world, your sons, they put their hopes in me because I'm like, I'm close to God. I'm promising you, I'm swearing, I'm making an oath that I'm not leaving this circle until you have mercy on your children and you, and you give them rain. You finish that prayer and it starts drizzling. And he tells God, no, that's not what I meant. I don't need drizzling, I need rain. So he says, okay, the rain, and it started pouring. It was too much water. Everyone was, he's like, no, 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 let's, let's have a balance. Let's have somewhere in the middle. And it started raining, but it didn't stop. And it started flooding. And the, the Mishnah tells us that the people, all people of Jerusalem had to climb onto Temple Mount because the water was everywhere. So they were going to the high grounds. Finally, he said, they came to him and said, okay, we asked you to pray for rain. Now we're asking you to pray for it to stop. And thus, uh, his name actually is called Magal because Magal means a circle. And he was famous for this episode of prayer where he interceded upon the behalf of the Jewish people and he got the rain to help save them. In fact, there's an entire book of Talmud called Tainus. Tainus means fast days. And the bulk of the book discusses enacting fasts for instances when there's no rain. When there's no rain, we want to pray. One of the ways we pray is we fast. And the story goes, this is from the Talmud in the book of Tainus on page 25b, with Rabbi Eliezer. There was no rain, and he enacted, he decreed 13 different days of fasting, and nothing happened. So everyone is there praying and fasting, and they're fed up. We had 13 fasts, it's not working, we're out. So everyone starts heading for the exits. And Rabbi Eliezer stops him. He's like, okay, if you want to do this, you should know that you're digging your own grave. Because we're, we're, gonna, we're all going to die because it's not, there's, there's a drought. And if you're giving up on God, you're toast. So what happens? They all started crying and immediately rain descended. That's the first story. The second story, it says, uh, again with Rabbi Eliezer, he started praying and he prayed 24 blessings to have rain and it wasn't answered. And Rabbi Kiva is like, okay, I'm going to try it. So Rabbi Kiva, who was uh, his student, he gets up and he says, Avinu Malteinu, our father, our king, we have no king besides for you and have mercy on your children. And finally, after that prayer, it starts raining. So Rabbi Lezer prays and it doesn't rain. Rabbi Kiva prays and it does rain. So everyone starts snickering. Look at this, Rabbi Kiva, he's so much more powerful than Rabbi Lezer. And a prophetic voice announces... Don't think that he is greater than him. Rather, the reason why I acceded to Rabbi Kiva's prayer, not to, to Rabbi Yezra's prayer, is because Rabbi Kiva, he yields to other people 
and allows and doesn't fight back. He restrains his negative characteristic. There's another very dramatic story. Again, this is only a sampling of many. There's a very dramatic story in the book of Kiddushin about Abaye. Abaye is one of the, I think it's the second most commonly mentioned name in the Talmud. The bad story of that Gemara is who gets precedence to go to study? Suppose you only have money for one tuition. Does the father go study by the rabbi or does the son go study by the rabbi? So one of the opinions in the Gemara is that whoever is more qualified, whoever is a more capable student, they take precedence. The story goes that Rav Yaakov, the son of Rav Acha, he sent his son to go study by Abaye. And he gets the report card and like, eh, your son's a little bit slow. He's not, he's not performing top of, the, top of the class. So he says, okay, I'm pulling you back and I'm going instead. Rav, ya- Rav Yaakov Breder of Acha is now coming to the academy of Abaye. And Abaye decides he's going to use this opportunity to solve a problem. The problem was, is that there was a demon in the house of scholarship, in the base Medrash. And no one could get rid of this problem. But now we have this great sage coming. We're going to use him to solve our problem. So Abaye goes over to all the people in the town and tells them, listen, Rabbi Yaakov, brother of Acha, he's coming. No one invite him to your house. So he comes and he arrives with all his bags from the long trip. He's trying to find a place to stay. No one wants to invite him. So what's his options? His only option is to go stay in the shul. He gets to the shul and he sees the demon. And that's exactly what Abaye wanted. So he starts praying. And the Talmud says that this demon had seven different heads. And each time Rav Yaakov, brother of Acha, would pray, he would bow down his head to God. Every time he bowed down his head to God, one of the heads of the demon was lopped off. He prayed seven times and he solved the problem. The next morning, Abaye shows up. Everyone's very happy they solved the problem. Rabbi Yaakov is not so happy. He's like, why did you do this to me? I could have gotten injured. He said, well, I knew you were okay. You're very righteous and you're going to pray. You're going to solve the problem. And the commentaries point out that prayer, you know, how could Abaye put in danger the other great sage, Rabbi Yaakov? How could he do it? And the answer is, is that, well, if someone is going to pray, it's going to save them and he wasn't worried about it. Anyhow, that's some of the stories from the Talmud about a great uh, sages and the power and potency of their prayer. Now, it's interesting. We still don't have a sitter. We are now a thousand years after the Shemona Esrei has been instituted. That text is still pretty much the same with minor additions, like we said in Yavna. But why don't they publish the finalized version? They wrote down, you know, we know Tanakh is written down and the Mishnah is written down, the Talmud is written down. Why is the Siddur not written down? I think this does get to a little bit of the tension that exists over here. The Talmud tells us that if prayer is made rote, if someone prays just as out of habit, that's not the intention. The intention is that someone is seeking mercy. And if you pray today, the same way you prayed yesterday, and the same way you're going to pray tomorrow, you haven't achieved your goal. And this is why the Talmud is very wary of, of having a codified sitter that you go to. And you just read. By doing that, you're likely to have the prayer become a a, a matter of habit, a matter of lip service, and not achieving the goal. And thus, even after the Talmud is sealed, it takes another 300 years or so 
for the first sitter to appear. Over that co- the course of that time, the center of, of Jewish life is going to begin to pivot away from Babylon. You have the great institutions of Surah and Pabedisa in Babylon, but Jews are starting to move everywhere, all over the globe, in Europe, in North Africa, in the Near East, in Asia Minor, and there's now a little bit of a need to make sure that e- these disparate communities have their religious needs tended to. And the burgeoning community in Spain sent a letter to Babylon, to Rav Amron Gon, and they said to him, we need a sitter. We need, we need, tell us, give us the finalized text of the order of all the various prayers and how they go. And thus was born the first sitter. And that became the gold standard for many Jewish communities across the world. Now, he didn't actually write it all out. He didn't write out all the chapters, etc. He just wrote the, okay, first this chapter, then that chapter, and then you say this prayer and that prayer, and thus they would use that. And once that happened, once the first sitter, quote-unquote, was published, soon afterwards, Rav Sa'ad Yagon, uh, he adds to it and he incorporates more of his prayers that he himself wrote, uh, had had composed. He might, may say an addendum to the sitter. He writes a digest of the laws of prayer in Arabic. Soon afterwards, in Europe, there's the Siddur Rashi from the school of Rashi and the Machsar Vitri. And slowly, there is the process and effort being to actually having a finalized text for the Siddur. And the problem is, is that each community is doing their own. And it's also being copied by hand. Whenever you copy things by hand, there's always a risk of divergent texts being discovered by various different copies and it's interesting, you know, if you look at the Talmud that we have in, in our torch center, and you compare it to the Talmud in Israel, or the Talmud in Yemenites, Talmud, or in China, or in Canada, or in France, they're all the same Talmud. And the reason why is because there was never an option. You write your Talmud, I'll write mine, we'll have different Talmud. It's all the same. It was all done with, this was one centralized Talmud that was written and finalized. Here, it's very decentralized. For many years, it's not written, it's not canonized, it's not finalized. And then it's written over here, it's written over there, it's written, over, it's written elsewhere. And you wonder, like, how come there's this kind of Seder and there's that kind of Seder? There's Nusach Ashnaz and Nusach Sfar and Nusach Ari and all these kinds of Nusachs, all these kinds of texts for prayer. This is one of the reasons why every community added to their own prayer book, they added their own prayers, they chose the order, and thus it developed in a decentralized way, allowing for different sidurim and different prayer orders and nuschos to develop. Now, over the years, there were many, many prayers that were added. Even today, like past 70 years, there's been a state of Israel. In many, many sidurim, there's a prayer for the state of Israel. It's an example that it's still a dynamic effort to ensure that the prayer still has a certain degree of fluidity. I want to share... Just several prayers, several iconic prayers that were added throughout the centuries. So the first is the Unasana Tokef prayer that we say on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, this is an amazing story uh, that happened about a thousand years ago in Mainz, in Germany. And the story goes with Rav Amnon. He was the leader of the Jews in that area at the time. This is in the run-up to the Crusades. And the bishop of the town 
he asked him, okay, I want you to convert to Christianity. And to buy time, he says, okay, come back to me in three days. And he felt bad that he didn't immediately declare that he's never going to convert to Christianity. So he started praying to forgive for his sin. Finally, the bishop says, okay, do you have a final answer? Are you going to convert to Christianity? He says, no. And the bishop decides to really torture him in a cruel way. He cuts off his legs. He cuts off his hands. He cuts off his feet. Really horrific stuff. And he leaves him as a bleeding and mutilated and maimed cripple with together with all the amputated parts of his body. Which, again, if you study the history of Christian anti-Semitism, it's not terribly unusual. So this great rabbi is in horrific pain and suffering, and Rosh Hashanah is about to arrive. And he tells his people, I want to be carried to the shul. I have something I want to say. And he gets carried to the shul. And as they're reciting the prayers, he stops everyone and says, okay, I have a prayer I want to add. And he he does the Unasanatokov prayer, which is a really haunting prayer that captures the power and the awe of the day. And as he was saying that, he died. Several days later, he appeared in a dream to one of his friends, and he told them the text of the prayer and asked him to spread it out in all parts of Jewry and have them inserted into their liturgy. And thus, in every shul on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, we have the Unasana Tokef. There's another prayer that we say on Shabbos between Shachris and Mosaf. It's called the Av Harachamim prayer. Father of mercy. And it's a prayer that's a response to the Crusades. When so many Jewish communities were slaughtered by our enemies and we're praying to God to give a proper stature to those people who suffered and to seek vengeance on their tormentors. And that too is included in the prayer service that we say today on Shabbos. And finally, in the 16th century, as we've spoken about several times in the past, Kabbalah was blossoming in Tzfat, in northern Israel and beyond. And there's many Kabbalistic influences that made their way into the prayer. Most notably is the Lechadodi prayer that we say at the entrance of Shabbos. The Talmud tells us that there was a song that people would say to welcome in the Shabbos bride, Boi Kala, come Shabbos bride. And in the 16th century, Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz, he composed the prayer, an expanded version of his prayer in the Lachadodi. It was endorsed by the Arizal, and thus that became the fixed prayer that we say on Friday nights. There's other prayers that arrive at the time uh, to say Brich Shmei, to say that part of Zohar before we take out the Torah stroll came from that time. The Shir Hayicho, the Shir Hayom, Yom Kippur Katan. There's many examples of prayers that resulted from the boom of Kabbalah in the 16th century. But over the course of the centuries, like we said, each community is going to codify their own sitter with their own Nusach. So Nusach Ari became popular in the Chabad community, uh, Nusach Ashkenaz in the Ashkenazic community, Nusach Svard, which is somewhat of a hybrid. It's taking Nusach Ashkenaz and adding a lot of the Kabbalah into it as well. The Yemenites have their own prayer, uh, the Edut Mizrach, various different communities 
in uh, the uh, Sephardic world have their own nusach, their own format, uh, text of, of prayer. And I think this, again, brings us back to the, I think, the central point of the history of prayer and that there is a tension. When the Almighty gave us the Torah through Moshe, there was a mitzvah to pray, but the prayer was supposed to be about a person's own feelings that they want to share with God. And it's supposed to come from the heart. And by having a fixed text that everyone has to follow, it's going to make that even harder. And that's why there's the tension because if people are not doing their responsibility, you have to have a finalized text. You have to make this an experience that everyone must partake in because otherwise they're not, part- they're not fulfilling the mitzvah. But you don't want to push it too hard into the rigidity side of, of, of things, of the equation, because then you're, you're losing out on the core essence of prayer. So there's this tension between fluidity and let people say what they want on their own on one hand, which is the ideal of prayer, and then the rigidity that is the necessity of times. And that allowed for so many different kinds of prayer, prayer books, to be developed. Yes, the Shemon Esrei was canonized, but there was a resistance to try to pigeonhole prayer and make it too inflexible. And I think there's really a benefit to both of them, both rigidity and fluidity. The Kuzari, the great medieval Jewish philosopher, he writes that prayer is for the soul what breakfast, lunch, and supper is for the body. If you don't eat for a couple of hours, you start getting a little hungry, a little uneasy, a little lightheaded, maybe a little grumpy, a little irascible, a little bit not fun to be around, maybe after eight or nine hours, and then you, you get some food and you're fine. That's the way your soul is, says the Kuzari. You need breakfast, right? Your body needs breakfast. Your soul needs breakfast. Well, what's breakfast for the soul? Chakras prayer. And that kind of sustains it for a few hours. And then it needs an afternoon pick-me-up. And then it needs an evening. And then it can make it way through the night and the morning gets hungry again. And I think, you know, just before I got here, I went to Davin to pray Mincha and Mairef. And what we like to do, we think of, we view prayer as being a chore, so we could, if we could just put them together, kill two birds with one stone, right? Uh, l- let's let's just put the afternoon prayer and the evening prayer, afternoon prayer at the latest time, evening prayer at the earliest time, so we could just crunch them together and get it both over with. That's the attitude that we have. No one says, you know what? Lunch, what a hassle. Dinner, what a pain. Let's just do lunch and dinner together and get it over with. And that's again, shows us what the challenge with prayer is, is that we don't necessarily treat it as lunch and dinner. We treat it as a chore and a chore, get the chores over together. But what he's telling us, it's an interesting insight to, uh, to just ruminate over, and that is, is that you might want to space them out because your soul kind of needs this experience. And if you even think about the fact that your soul is enjoying it, maybe it'll be a little bit more palatable for us. And I think that there, there is a benefit. Uh, according to this outlook, we don't want to eat. It's like, what do you do with a patient who doesn't want to eat breakfast? You have to say, okay, you don't want to eat breakfast, but here's breakfast. You got to force feed them breakfast and lunch or else they'll die, right? That's basically what happened to the Jewish people. Our soul was starving, but we said, ah, I don't want breakfast. Okay, rigidity comes. And they say, okay, in the morning you say this, eat your Wheaties, right? That's what that's what the sages are telling us. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the in the night, they're trying to kind of guide us because we don't want to guide ourselves. 
But there's still a benefit even today to the fluidity aspect of prayer. And even the sages of the Men of the Great Assembly, they allowed for people to ad-lib at any point in time in, in the prayers. You are allowed and even encouraged to talk to God as you talk to your fellow man. I was told this a long time ago, and I still advocate for this idea, is that you know, prayer is hard for us, especially when it's in Hebrew, especially when it's designated to the shul, you got to wear the prayer shawl. It, it, it's so rigid, but God understands English at a very high level. And you could talk to God wherever you want. Throughout the stories of that we've read, people would just talk to God as you would talk to someone, to a king. And if you just adopt that, you're still, you're still accessing the part of the prayer, which is the essence of prayer. In conclusion, prayer is a central part of Jewish life. It has a rich history, but it's still one of the three elements that uphold our world and hopefully our discussion and our surveying of its history will make it more meaningful and relevant and inspirational to us in our lives today.